Good morning. My name is Kevin Johnson. I'm pastor here at Macedonia United Methodist Church, in case you didn't figure that out by now. Um, but that is the joy that I have is to, is to serve here and serve God's people. Uh, it is a joy to be in your presence today. We continue in a series today called Cha-Ching, God, Money, and Me. Uh, today we're going to talk about the idea of prosperity and the question, the question we are, we're going to ask about prosperity is, well, doesn't God want me to be rich? We're going to answer that together um, and, and think about it. So our, uh, our scripture this morning comes from Matthew, from the 19th chapter, starting in verse 20. This is right in the midst of when the rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he's just answering. He says, well, I'm, I'm doing all the good stuff, Jesus. I, I'm keeping the commandments. I, I'm a good Jew. And, and so Jesus continues with him. The young man replied, I've kept all these. What am I still missing? Jesus said, if you want to be complete, go sell what you own and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away saddened because he had great many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you that it will be very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. When his disciples heard this, they were stunned. Then who can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them carefully and said, it's impossible for human beings, but all things are possible for God. Then Peter replied, Look, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? Jesus said to them, I assure you who have followed me that when everything is made new, when the Son of Man sits on his magnificent throne, you also will sit on twelve thrones, overseeing the twelve tribes of Israel, and all who have left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, or farms because of my name will receive one hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In a sermon to his massive congregation in Atlanta, Creflo Dollar informed them on one Sunday, I won two Rolls Royces and didn't pay a dime for them. Why? Because while I'm pursuing the Lord, those cars are pursuing me. Most of us have not experienced the blessing of God in the form of six-figure cars coming our way. And while we may laugh at such an ostentatious sign of God's provision, we live in a culture and country where prosperity is often the goal. Prosperity is such a nice word compared to getting rich or being greedy. Prosperity implies wellness in all of life, including money. And as much as we might gawk at Creflo Dollar's extravagant Rolls-Royce example, we live in a culture where the prosperity gospel experiences big audiences and big money. 
prosperity gospel is a teaching and movement that promises health and wealth in return for a believer's faith. There is massive appeal to this distortion of the gospel. It sounds appealing because God wants us to have an abundant life, right? In an interview I watched this week between Oprah and Joel Osteen, pastor of Lakewood Church, the largest church in the country, she asked him, why would anyone criticize you for preaching prosperity? And the implied reason for her asking the question is that it seemed foolish that anyone would question prosperity preaching. For those who believe it, the gospel of prosperity is like unearthing this incredible jewel that they didn't know existed within the Christian faith. Kate Bowler, who's the first researcher and historian of the prosperity gospel, wrote about this term, blessed, and how it was being used in a 2016 article she wrote for the New York Times. She writes this. She says, blessed is a loaded term because it blurs the distinction between two very different categories, gift and reward. It can be a term of pure gratitude, like this. Thank you, God. I could not have secured this for myself. But it, blessed, can also imply that it was deserved. Thank you, me, for being the kind of person who gets it right. It is a perfect word, she says, for an American society that says it believes the American dream is based on hard work, not luck. So what is interesting about churches that teach prosperity, that God's plan for you is for you to be healthy and wealthy, is that it correlates to a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps mentality. As such, there's an element in this way of thinking where God becomes humanity's pawn. Joel Osteen promised this, if you'll do your part, God will do his. He will promote you. He'll give you increase. But first, you must be a good caretaker of what you have. Well, the idea of being a good caretaker of what we have sounds like what we often preach here about stewardship. There's a give and take with God in this relationship that sounds a little bit strange. The idea of blessed applies then not only to the negative cancer diagnosis, but to the parking spot that was just made for your vehicle. Paula White, who lists many celebrities, including the president as her flock, said this about God. He is the master puppeteer who is making all the right moves, orchestrating each event that comes your way, preparing your blessing. And he is doing everything that concerns you in his perfect time. God as the master puppeteer is not the image that I necessarily equate to God, but the idea that God is preparing my blessing is extremely appealing. What makes a lot of the prosperity gospel tick is this endless sense of optimism. This optimism seems infectious, especially if the leaders of this movement have been blessed with wonderful material possessions. But what happens when people don't feel God's blessings? What happens when life hands you lemons? What happens when you're laid off from the job, when people close to you die, when you get the negative diagnosis? The answers usually then lie with you not having enough faith. You need to speak your blessing into existence. This American version of faith doesn't really have answers for those times when the going gets rough. So in a sense, the prosperity teaching teaches that I can do it by myself. If I just think rightly, if I just make the right calls, then God will bless me. God is the master puppeteer, after all. 
But what ends up happening is that instead of believing in God, people come to believe in themselves. Believers start to treat faith like the karma concept of Hinduism. If I have enough faith, then good things will happen. Blessings will flow. And in that way of thinking, God becomes like a giant vending machine, right? Showering down on me a blessing like a bag of chips from on high. So the answer to the question, doesn't God want me to be rich from a prosperity preacher, would be, of course God wants you to be rich. God wants to shower abundant blessings upon each person. All we have to do is claim those promises that God has for us. This distinctly American expression of faith sounds a little different from the teachings of Jesus about money. The rich young man comes to Jesus and asks him what he must do to have eternal life. Jesus responds that he should keep the commandments. The young man replies that he has kept them. He thinks that he is all good and that he is set, but he continues to press Jesus and asks, well, then what, what am I still missing? Jesus tells them that if he wants to be complete, he should sell what he has and give his money to the poor. Then he will have treasure in heaven. And then Jesus invites the young man to follow him. And the young man walks away sad because he had a lot of possessions. He had great wealth. The man wanted a salvation where his obedience and effort could save him. He wanted to keep the commandments and feel like he had earned his way to God. He wanted righteousness because he had done the right things. But the man becomes our paradigm in scripture for those who have a lot of money. And Jesus says those famous lines, I assure you that it will be very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Why would Jesus teach such a thing? It's because he knows the possessions come to possess us. He knows that the more people gain an earthly wealth, the more they are tempted to think that they have made it on their own. The rich young ruler was telling Jesus, I did it by myself. He had tried to save himself. And Jesus reminds the disciples that it is impossible for humans to be saved by their effort alone, but all things are possible for God. Jesus' teaching about prosperity, and indeed the themes throughout the whole Bible, seem to point to the opposite of prosperity teaching. Jesus seems to look on compassion with the poor, not judgment that they didn't do enough for themselves. The close of this chapter states that those who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So earthly prosperity seems to be at odds with the teachings of Jesus. In other words, our question isn't, doesn't God want me to be rich? But it should be, oh God, how could I follow Jesus as a middle, middle upper class American in 2019? We question from the wrong starting place. Because for many of us, the prosperity gospel and its ideas just prop us up to believe that we did something ourselves to deserve God's favor. I mean, I've worked hard in life, but I've had a lot of legs up on other people. I grew up in a two-parent household. I'm white, and I'm a man. I worked hard, but a lot was just given to me. God has blessed me, but a lot of what gets labeled as blessing is my circumstances. And over and over in Scripture, Jesus says things like, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
So even if our church is not a prosperity church, and even if I don't stand up here and talk about the two Rolls Royces that are pursuing me, we are susceptible to this distortion of the gospel of Jesus. Because we face temptation all the time to make a consumeristic church. Where church becomes all about your experience. We use words like relevant to describe the preaching or the or the service as a whole. We make the gospel then more palatable by taking out those bits about sin and suffering. In prosperity churches specifically, the globe has replaced the cross as the chief symbol. That tells you something. It is about overcoming our overcoming and victorious spirit, and not about Christ's overcoming death through the cross and being victorious. So in prosperity churches, tithing can become the chief act of worship. And while I think that giving is a very important spiritual discipline, I think it helps us rightly order our finances and reminds us of whose they are, I think that coming to the table is the chief act of worship. And the scripture that undergirds prosperity church's practice of tithing is the one we read in Luke 6.28 today, where it says, Give, and it will be given to you. A good portion, packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing, will fall into your lap. The return you give will determine the portion you receive in return. Friends, this verse, though, is not necessarily about money. This verse is in the context of how we are to be generous in all relationships. Jesus has just told the disciples to love, to do good, and to lend freely, to judge, to forgive, and now to give. Yet this verse, plucked from its context, has become the cornerstone of passages about giving and practices about giving in the prosperity movement. Lynette Hagen, who's the daughter-in-law of Kenneth Hagen, one of the great early prosperity gospel preachers, wrote a litany of sorts that many churches use while they hold up their tithing envelopes. In fact, they hold their envelope up. Let's find one. It's bigger usually and pink in those places, but it says, this is my seed. I sow it into the kingdom of God. I sow because I love God and want to see this church continue to fulfill what God has called us to do. That sounds good. I believe that as I sow my seed, it shall be given unto me, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. You hear the words of Luke 6. It shall come back to me in many ways. I thank you, Lord, for good opportunities coming my way. I thank you that the windows of heaven are opening because of my obedience to sow my seed. I thank you, Lord, for the favor of God upon my life and the grace to prosper as you have promised me in your word. In this context, giving to the church happens not just to give, but really to receive. Prosperity faith is that in giving, people will be more materially blessed. We are susceptible to messages like this because they sound good. They are appealing. They promote self-worth and confidence. And they don't really call into question the problems of our society. These messages don't call upon the problems of systemic poverty, but would just tell someone to live right and seek God's blessing. Prosperity teaching then baptizes our idols of consumerism and excess and calls them God's will. In their book, Resident Aliens, Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon write, the Western democracies tend to have a problem with meaning. They promise their citizens a society in which each citizen is free to create his or her own meaning. 
meaning which for most of us becomes little more than the freedom to consume at even higher levels. Friends, there has to be more to life than earning more in order to consume more. For the problems of consumerism that we encountered last week do not just go away in the prosperity gospel. Rather, they become a goal and a marker of the blessed life. One Rolls Royce just won't do for the preacher. He needs the second to show God's rich blessing. But the prosperity's blessed life is not the same as what Jesus promises in abundant life. Jesus promised in John 10, I have come that they may have life and may have it to the full or have it more abundantly. Friends, God wants to lavish grace upon us with truly abundant life. God wants us to know that we are loved, accepted, cherished, and affirmed by him. Friends, grace is received when we grasp that there is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. There is no formula for you to comprehend, no optimism that you must speak over your life. Grace is receiving the love of Jesus for you that allows you to live a life focused on the love of God and others, not the pursuit of stuff for yourself. This is the truly blessed life. God knows that riches make us ever more self-consumed and we begin to think that we no longer need God. So doesn't God want me to be rich? Not really. What God wants is to free us from feeling like we have to earn our way to him. When we know that we are loved and accepted by God, that is the prosperous life. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord our God, we thank you this morning that you love us as your children. As these children who came to the waters of baptism this morning to receive your grace and your love, God, so we come like little children before you. We recognize that we don't know or comprehend or understand everything about who you are and that we never will, and yet you lavish your love and grace upon us. God, like a parent to, to their children, that you love us so much that you give us Jesus. So God, help us to be those types of people who would receive your love and receive your grace. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.